Today I'll be preaching from 2 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 32. If you want to follow along in your Bible in your seats, that's from page 351. 2 Samuel chapter 2. Mind you that the first portion of this chapter we read and heard last week, we uh, learned that David ascended to the throne of Judah and took up that kingly work that God had anointed him to do. But Abner rejected David, and we're going to see the consequences of that in this passage. Beginning in verse 12, this is God's word. Now Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zeruiah, the servants of David, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So they arose and went over by number, twelve from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Asahel pursued Abner, and in going he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following after Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? He answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left. And lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back. He fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that, many as, that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died stood still. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Ammah, which is before Gia by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit, took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be, a, will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? Joab said, God lives, unless you had spoken, 
Surely then, by morning, all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron. They came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he gathered all the people together, there, there were missing of David's servants, 19 men, and Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. Then they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger. The house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. This passage almost sounds like the Game of Thrones, doesn't it? A description of the, uh, a fictional description of the infighting and intrigue and the battles that might happen between different political powers. You can see that in this troubling and, uh, and uh, very almost exciting description of this passage. A description of what appears to be almost like a gladiator battle, and then a thrilling chase and a mano a mano battle between two men. The series go on goes on into the next chapter and describes political intrigue and infighting that takes place, and then an a rival trying to cut a deal, and finally a jealous blood feud results in a murder. Like I said, it sounds almost like the Game of Thrones, but it isn't, is it? This is an actual history of the Bible times, part of the history of, re- of redemption that will lead us to consider the greatest king of all, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. It's for that reason that I've titled my sermon today, Kiss the Son, the Anointed King. That's from Psalm 2, and there are many things about this that remind me of what Psalm 2 says. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish. Kiss the son, pay homage to him, pointing forward to Jesus Christ. For in this passage, there is someone who rejects the king, who rejects the anointed king uh, that God has given to to them. That person is Abner. He resists God's king and fails in his resistance. This passage shows the disaster of resisting God's anointed king. We'll begin just there in first uh, in the uh, the first part of of this passage to see that Abner rejected God's king. Really, ultimately, he rejected God. And your outline on the back of the bulletin, it says that he rejected God's king. But you could add to that that ultimately he rejected God and his word as well. Here I want you to pay very close attention of that rejection. Abner rejected God. 
and his king. You need to hold on to this because at several points, there are aspects about the way Abner conducts himself that, uh, that might make you think that he is honorable in the way he goes about doing things. And I'm going to point that out. But I, I, I hope that you will not let that cloud your understanding of what is happening here because Abner does indeed reject God and reject David, God's anointed king. It started back in the first portion where David ascends to the throne for which he had been anointed, but Abner refused to acknowledge him. This would have been the perfect time for Israel to be united against, uh, against a common enemy. Uh, we'll find that uh, the, the Philistines were still a threat against them. What has brought them to this point was the invasion of the Philistines, the death of Saul and Jonathan and the other sons, the humiliating defeat of the Israel army. But here, Abner refused to align himself with David. Instead, he took Ishbosheth and he sets him up as king, and the rest of the tribes of Israel follow Ishbosheth. It becomes apparent through the rest of the story that Abner is really the one who is the powerful man and seemingly using Ishbosheth as something of a puppet king. You know what, know what that means? You know, a puppet where there's somebody behind the scene who has the strings to the puppet and is, is uh, pulling those strings. Well, Abner really comes across as the strong man uh, who sets up Ishbosheth as the one who is the front man, but behind him is Abner pulling the strings. What he does, instead of, uh, uh, of, uh, of standing against that enemy, the Philistines, or reuniting all of the tribes, what Abner created was a bloody civil war that pitted brother against brother much like the civil wars throughout all of time. Here in the United States, those that were related, those that were even friends or comrades end up on either side of a battle and killing each other. And that comes out in this passage as well. At the heart of Abner's actions, not only does he reject David, but he also openly rejected the clear, revealed word of God. It was well known that David was the one anointed to be the next king. Abner's even going to refer to that later in in the story. But Abner seized power to himself. He elevated his own position, he elevated his own pride and his ambition against God himself. And I like the stern warning that, uh, that Calvin gives about this. He says, we have here a mirror to show us how pride and haughtiness is a mortal plague which is bound to weaken the church of God. Pride 
and ambition, pride and haughtiness is a mortal plague which is bound to weaken the church of God. I want you to think about that, to, to pause here and to step back from the narrative and understand that this is what Abner is doing, but now apply it to yourself and to recognize that pride and haughtiness is something that is very common. It is a devilish tactic of our enemy, Satan. A devilish tactic because he, he uses your own interests, uses your own abilities, and plays upon your own pride and self-interest in a way that does damage to you and to those around you. When you elevate your own interests above that of God, you do damage yourself and to the people around you. You may even think, perhaps, uh, perhaps like Abner thought, perhaps he thought uh, Israel needs a leader here. There's a vacuum. We need someone to step up, and I'm the man for the job. Surely God would use me to promote and to protect his own people. But how often do we miss the fact that we, when we elevate ourselves, that we deny God himself? So your reasoning might go something like this. I'm the man for the job. I'm the woman for this job. My church needs this. My company needs this. My my family needs me. Me. At the end of the day, what the church, company, or family needs is Christ. And needs you to be a humble servant of Christ. That's why Calvin's warning is so appropriate. Pride elevates you, even in the face of God himself. You become so deceived about your own importance that you elevate yourself even against God himself. It is bound to weaken you in your relationship with God. I hope that you can see that. You're saying, I am what is needed here. And I am sufficient for this, rather than recognizing God's role in your life and your service to the King Jesus Christ. It is bound to weaken and damage you and to damage the church. And 2 Samuel shows that. For not only did Abner reject David and reject God's word and God himself, if that wasn't enough, Abner then turns his attention to attack David. God's own anointed. That's our second point, that Abner attacks and fails. 
the timeline here is not told exactly, uh, but it appears that David was content to wait upon the Lord, him to bring the other tribes to, to unite them under the single kingship. He's shown the same patience to wait upon the Lord in all that he did. It says that David was seven years in Hebron, serving as king, and then, then there are two years with Ishbosheth. Those other five years, we think that, that Abner was, was standing in the gap, thinking that uh, this is what must be done. The Philistines were still an active enemy, and so in the north, in those, those northern tribes, he organizes that and stands against that enemy but is opposed to David. But David seems to wait patiently. Abner is not. So instead of doing what God's revealed will was to, to go to David, to use his influence to gather together the united tribes of Israel, Abner separated against David and then and then turns to fight against him. This militarily, this is this is really, really foolish. It's, it's stupid. Philistines are in the north and David's in the south. He's got a now an enemy on both sides. But let's see what uh, what Abner did. Here it's uh, I'm going to explain some things that the narrative um, tells very simply and in a way that, uh, that seems innocuous or seems to be almost like this is, this is a friendly competition. This is no friendly competition. Abner is the aggressor in this case because he invades Judah. It says that he and his men left their encampment and they entered the territory of Judah close to Hebron where David and his men were. That's an act of war. He is the aggressor in this case. Then verse 13 says that Joab and his men went out to meet them. They sat down uh, for what's described as a competition. Again, it is said simply, I think, because of recognizing the cultural context, but here's maybe a better way for you to understand it. Abner invaded, and in self-defense, Joab went out to meet him. That's what happens if there's an invading army. You go out to meet the invader in self-defense. They're camped around the uh, this pool of Gibeon, and Abner issues a challenge. Let the young men come out and fight. Here's where I say I think the cultural context will help you understand this. It would have been reasonably common in the day for there to be champions to fight against each other and that the, uh, 
the, the winner of that battle would then represent the entire armies. And you should remember that this actually happened in 1 Samuel. The giant Goliath came and did this very thing. He came out and defied the armies of Saul. He came out and defied the God of Israel. He came out and said, who am I that you would chase me around? You send out your greatest fighter and I will fight against him and the winner will take all. That's what Abner is doing here. It's what uh, one commentator calls an evil delight in bloodthirsty warfare. Rather than engaging in the battle himself, there is something of a of the gladiatorial battle that is being watched, proposed by Abner by this challenge, so that they can watch a battle to the death between these 12, uh, or 12 men on both sides. The passage goes on, and it describes them fighting. Each one grasped his opponent by the head, and thrust his sword so that they fell down together. And here the pronouns make it a little unclear what's happening, but uh, later we see that it is David's men that are the ones who won this battle. And that helps us understand that what happens here is that the 12 men from David's army under Joab come out and fight against Saul's, excuse me, Ishbosheth's army. And it's the 12 men of David that together defeat all of Abner's men. It is they, Abner's men, that fall down to get together. A very a dramatic scene to show uh, the victory that, uh, that Joab's men had against it. And I can't help but think that here is Abner, who is coming in to invade, who proposes this, this, uh, this challenge fight, who thought it might be a thrilling contest, maybe a way to demoralize Joab and his men, and it is a complete disaster for Joab. The battle is so de- decisive that the location becomes, uh, becomes named a battle site that is called the Field of Sharp Swords. And Joab's victory is complete, but then even more chaos, and perhaps treachery ensues. The idea of having this, uh, this challenge battle was that that would be the end of the fighting, but more fighting ensues. I tend to think that it might be something of a, uh, 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 of a desperate move by Abner, not to keep his word about this challenge, but instead then to ensue to fight, which he said that that's not what the purpose is. There's a battle that now rages. Perhaps you've read C.S. Lewis and the Prince Caspian. There's a battle right there at the end where the champions are to fight. Uh, King Edmund and the usurper King Miraz come together, but the usurpers don't fight honorably. There is treachery that happens, and an entire battle 
ensues. And in this case, that's what happened. The armies fought now. But even this, in this, Abner's plans failed. The battle was so lopsided that Abner and his men had to run away and retreat. Well, he attacked and he failed. Let's pause here just a moment and reflect on the disastrous consequences from, from Abner's pride. I gave that warning from Calvin that pride and ambition, pride is, a, is disastrous to those who are consumed by it. And it affects not only them, but it affects the house of God as well. That it damages the house of God. Well, here is Abner thinking that he would seize power, maybe to push David out of, out of the throne, maybe to scatter his armies and to capture David or even kill him. But the fight ended up against him. All of his plans come to naught. Though he sought to throw off David's rule and his reign, what happened was that he had to slink away, he had to run away for his life. And even though Abner was bloodthirsty, he could not and did not prevail against God's king. That can be very uh, uh, encouraging to us, especially when we see uh, what appears to be the tide of culture shifting against Christianity these days. And it seems like it's sweeping away all godliness and that the gospel is retreating. But we can be confident in the promises of God that the Lord Jesus Christ has his own that he claims and that the gates of hell cannot prevail against his kingdom. He will have his way. He will have his people. We go back then to 2 Samuel. We find that Abner kills Asahel. More tragedy that takes place. Not only is there a bloody civil war, but this action sparks a blood feud between Abner and Joab. So Asahel who is the brother of Joab and Abishai, chases after Abner as he retreats. Chases after him and will not turn aside. I think he understood that here's the head of, of the enemy, and if I strike him down, that will bring in a quick end to this. He may have been motivated by glory and pride himself as well, but he will not turn aside. And Abner here warns warns against this. I don't want to strike you down. Turn aside. Go get a different soldier to fight against. You can have glory from him, but turn aside. Asahel doesn't, and Abner warns him again. If you don't turn aside, I'll have to kill you. And then... Recognize, how will I face your brother if I have killed you? And still he refuses to turn aside. 
Abner strikes down Asahel. It's described here as using the blunt end of the spear. That's, that's the closest uh, translation of that. An um, awful way to die, if, as if there's any good way. It's possible that it, it, it could be interpreted that uh, military move, instead of thrusting with the spear, there was a back thrust. Either way, Asahel falls and dies. By this point, Joab and the rest of the army have caught up, and battle lines are drawn there. Behind Abner, his, his soldiers form up as a unit, up on the high ground, defensible, and Abner calls out at this point, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brothers? And at this point, Abner says something that is true. This type of battle is a bitter type of battle. It is bloody, and it pits brother against brother, those that are related to each other. And here's why I say Abner seems to be noble at this point. And there's something that, that kind of draws you in to say, well, Abner is, is, a, is a noble man at this point. But remember that Abner started this fight. Remember that Abner rejected the revealed will of God in rejecting David. Remember that Abner set up Ishbosheth as an opposing king. Remember that Abner was the one who instigated the battle. He was the aggressor in this. He moved into Judah's territory. Remember that Abner was the one that issued the challenge for this bloody competition. Remember that it was Abner who struck down Asahel. Abner wasn't acting nobly. He speaks the truth, but he's trying to get away at this point. He knows that if Joab doesn't stop, that he's a dead man. And so he speaks truly. And Joab shows restraint. Consequences of Abner's pride have resulted in a bloody civil war. And a blood feud now with Joab. That will come in future episodes, but the immediate fallout is that Abner attacked, and he failed. He retreats in defeat, and while David's army lost 20 men, they killed about 360. They killed 360 of Abner's men. Abner had to slink back across the Jordan River. And Joab retreats as well. He listened to Abner's words. He restrained his army. He had fought when it was necessary, and he showed restraint. He then does return to his camp, taking the body of his brother to be buried in the tomb of his father. 
So let's conclude by connecting this to Psalm 2. I called your attention to this earlier. Abner pursued his own ambition rather than following God. He exalted himself against the Lord's anointed, even attacking him. But Abner failed. Here's where I, why I'm reminded of Psalm 2. The opening verses of Psalm 2 say, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Psalm goes on to call all those who would exalt themselves against God to kiss the Son, which means to pay homage to God's King. And this is a psalm about Jesus, who is the Lord's anointed King. Second Samuel calls you to consider that king. Are you raging against God in the language of Psalm 2? Are you chafing under his law? Have you been influenced by your own pride to exalt yourself up against the Lord and his anointed Jesus Christ? Rather than aligning yourself under him, you are trying to usurp that position as if you should have Christ aligned under you. As you cast off the Lord's rule, listen to this warning. You fight against God's king. You do so to your own destruction. You cannot be redeemed by Christ by throwing off his rule. To rebel against him is to reject the redemption he offers. Once more, Calvin has said very well, all who do not submit themselves to the authority of Christ make war against God. The conclusion of Psalm 2 comes out very clearly. Therefore, be wise. Serve the Lord with godly fear. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all who trust in him. The Lord Jesus Christ is that one and only great anointed king. and He calls all of us to bow before him to repent of our sins, and to entrust our souls to him. Your pride, your arrogance, your haughtiness, your desires for acknowledgement of self-promotion all wage war against that. To your hurt and the hurt of those around you. Kiss the sun. God's anointed King, Jesus Christ. And in him, find that there is victory over sin and Satan and death. Let's pray. Lord God, 
how easy it is for us to be deceived by our own pride. What a devilish attack that is against us. We think so highly of ourselves that we ignore that you alone are king. And we set ourselves up to be the ultimate authority of all things. We set ourselves up with the one who has all wisdom. We set ourselves up as the one who needs to be followed. But Lord, we do so to our own great harm. I pray that we would be warned by, uh, by 2 Samuel. We'd be warned by Abner's pride the damage that that causes. Lord, this is a, a, a troubling passage for us to consider. Lord, which one of us has not brought upon our own heads trouble by our own pride? Lord, I pray that you would humble us of that sin. Help us to confess while there is time, rather than following that doggedly, to not only reject, but to attack your church and your king. Instead, O oh Lord, I pray that we would recognize Jesus as the only Lord and Savior. Acknowledge him as king. In his name we pray. Amen. So this reminds me of Psalm 2, and I invite you to turn to sing that together. And it would be a... a a humbling psalm for us to sing, Psalm 2, Selection A, uh, that while we, we see God's victory declared and the humbling that he brings to even the mighty of this earth, that we would be humble before our Lord. Stand and sing Psalm 2A.